Oh, man. But don't worry, we're, gonna, we're continuing in worship right now, okay? Because <laughs> God is speaking. I don't know about you, did, did you guys just feel like you're transported to like this, like the presence of God is here, right? And, and, he, and he's not just here for your neighbor, he's here because he wants to speak to you too. And he wants to transform our lives. Oh, I could get going. I'm going to get ahead of myself this morning. Um, we, we today, whew, today is officially the last day of a five-month series we're doing through the Gospel of Mark. Now, my goal for this series is not that we might learn more head knowledge about the Bible. After all, head knowledge alone rarely changes us. But our prayer every time we gather and open God's word is that God's spirit would reveal to us the reality of who Jesus is and his life-altering love for us. Because following Jesus isn't ultimately about information transfer. Am I by myself on that? Anybody else with me? It is about dynamic transformation and a living relationship with God. And when I say transformation, I don't mean mere behavior modification either, as if Jesus came and gave his life so that we can come to church every Sunday and just try not to mess up too much before we get to heaven. No, life with Jesus and following Jesus is about an internal transformation that's rooted in the revelation that even though I failed to love my creator and could not measure up to his holy standard, that Jesus paid my debt with his life on the cross and that Jesus took my punishment for my sin and for our sin to set us free from its power over us and connect us both now and forever with the God who made us and loves us. And this connection happens because God, by his spirit, dwells within all those who believe. In a couple weeks, we're going to start a, a sermon series on the Holy Spirit and who he is and what he does. So stay tuned for that. But when Jesus encounters our life, he radically changes the old narrative of our lives and he places us within his story that he's telling in history and gives us his purpose for our lives as he's working out all that he is doing in the midst of this world. And he gives us his faith-ignited imagination to see what God wants to do in our lives, in our families, in our communities, and even in this church and the world. Somebody like, man, he's coming in hot today. I am. I am. Because I want us to get what this is. What we're doing. We don't gather on Sunday to play. We gather to enjoy Jesus, but also to be transformed and changed. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to ask you guys this morning, what are we believing God wants to do in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our community. What is it that we believe God wants to do in and through us here and now? And notice, I'm not asking, 
What do you want God to do for you? All right? As if he's some cosmic genie butler who's just waiting for us to ask God that Mac Jones will become the next Tom Brady, right? I know that's your desire. But he's, he's God, he's master, not us, right? So, so, so let, me, let me ask that question again. What is it that you think God wants to do in the midst of our lives, our families, our church, our communities? And if you're not sure how to answer that question right now, you know what? That's okay. If you don't know how to exactly to wrap your mind around it, I get it. It's a question of radical hope in a time, frankly, where hope is sometimes hard to come by. I mean, I, I don't need to rehash the news and world events of the last two years to, talk, to, to share what I mean, right? No one, no one needs me to do that. But I, I can certainly say I've asked over these last two years, like, God, what are you doing? Oh, like, where's the world going? What's the world going to be like for my kids? What's it going to be like for my grandkids? God, who am I to change anything? Right? Am I, am I by myself or is anybody else here in here ask that kind of question? And we've all experienced in this last year the cold loneliness of fear or the grief that we couldn't do more to change things. And I'd guess that we've all in some way acted, reacted, or coped with it all in ways we wish we could take back. And we've all, at least my mind has done this, has this tendency when bad things keep happening, when we see, keep see, seeing situations happen that discourage us, our minds tend to just keep stacking those things on top of each other. You know how you can just rattle off everything that's going wrong in the world at one time, right? And we keep stacking these things in our minds until eventually it topples in despair. The past couple of years, hope has been hard to hold on to. And if that's where we are, and if we're honest with ourselves this morning, then I want us to really lean in here to the end of Mark 15. Because at the end of Mark chapter 15, we're going to see that the followers of Jesus are in a place of despair that I think many of us may even have a hard time imagining. That at the end of Mark's gospel, the followers of Jesus had incredible expectations for him, but the Romans crushed it. Jesus is dead. The tomb is sealed. The disciples are scattered. And there are a few disciples, followers still lingering around, but, but hope is gone. And where is God in the midst of it all? So we're going to pick up at Mark 15, starting at verse 42. But before I get to that, let me just say briefly as a little parenthesis. Many of you in your Bibles uh, may notice at the end of Mark, there, there are actually, instead of like 11, 12 verses there at the end, Mark uh, 16, verses 9 to 20. Um, but we're not going to cover those. And reason being is because I don't believe, and most biblical scholars today nearly unanimously agree that that wasn't a part of what Mark originally wrote. All right, so basically, 
If you go back to the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark, these last verses, 16, 9 through 20, don't show up in those earliest manuscripts. And the earliest church fathers in the first, second century writing about Mark don't include any of this in their writings. And if you read it too, you'll see, ah, it reads quite differently from the rest of Mark. So the most likely explanation for that little cluster of verses there at the end is that someone 100 to 200 years after Mark wrote this gospel, someone was copying it by hand and was a little unsatisfied with the way Mark ended the gospel. And then he decided he was going to chalk on and add a whole lot more to it. All right, so, so I, I, I personally, it's my opinion that it wasn't a part of it. But if you read it, what I want you to see is if you do read that, and it's okay to read it, right? Read those verses, you'll see, oh, even if we take that, even if that's not a part of the Bible, that doesn't take away the reality of who Jesus is, and it doesn't change our faith in the least bit. All right? And if you have any questions about all that, man, just come talk to me. I'd be, I'd be happy to explain that further and, and, and why I think that and why... Um, uh, that's a common view today. But we are going to lean right into Mark 15, verses 42 to 16, verse 8. All right? And uh, if you want pull to pull out one of these Bibles in front of you, these blue Bibles, um, pull it right out. We're on page 829. Um, but if you could please stand with me as we read God's Word together. This is Mark chapter 15, verse 42. And hey, listen, if you don't have a Bible at home, these, please take one of these with you today. It is our gift to you. And we just encourage you to read it. All right, Mark 15, starting at verse 42. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and, the mother, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on the way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, if you pray after me and say, God... Open my heart, open my mind, transform my life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Thank you. 
So if you, re- if you read the very end of the Gospel of Mark, can you, can you see why someone might want to try to add something on to the end of it? Right? The ending is very abrupt. It's very sudden, leaving you wondering, uh, what's going to happen next? And we'll talk about all that at the end, as far as the ending of this Gospel. But before we get to Jesus' empty tomb, I want to first talk about the various tombs that we find ourselves in. In this story, we're going to see three different examples of tombs. Tombs of fear, tombs of despair, tombs of shame. And we're going to look at those three examples and understand that I mean, every single one of us, we have areas in our lives where we're not really living. And we're not all the same, right? Despair and hopelessness manifest in different ways in different people's lives. And so we're going to look at these three examples, but then we're going to see, okay, what does the reality of the resurrection mean for all of that? All right? I'm excited about this today. So first, first, when opposition is all around us, the tomb of fear tries to silence our faith. For the first and only time, we meet a man named Joseph from a village called Arimathea. Now, this is not Joseph, Jesus' dad, right? Okay, like this is a completely different Joseph. the only time we meet this Joseph. But the text says he's a member of the council. And see, the council is referring to the Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin. And if you remember from last week and the week before, yes, the Sanhedrin is the very same group of guys who put Jesus to death just two nights earlier, who condemned him and spat in his face. But even though the rest of the council members hated Jesus, Joseph was different. He was called a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God, meaning he craved spiritual renewal. He wanted to see cultural change, revival in his nation. Anybody else in here with him on that? And because of that, he was naturally drawn to Jesus. But John's gospel says that that this Joseph of Arimathea went as far as to call himself a disciple of Jesus. But he was quiet about it because he was afraid of his colleagues and the other Jewish leaders around him. So among the Jesus-hating Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea was a minority. And he knew that if he openly came out as a follower of Jesus, he could lose his position, his influence, his wealth, maybe worse. But when the Sanhedrin condemned and spat on Jesus, there is no record or evidence of Joseph speaking up for him. From all we know, he was passive. He was silent through it all. He was found within this tomb of fear because of the opposition he felt. Now, there's something that happened, though, in the midst of Jesus' death that all of a sudden allowed Joseph to find courage. 
It could have been that as Jesus died, Joseph saw the love in his eyes. Or maybe he just couldn't stand the thought of Jesus' body being taken down from the cross and just thrown into an unmarked grave. But either way, he found courage and asked Pilate if he could take Jesus' body and lay it within his own tomb carved out of rock. And you see, this took guts for Joseph to do that. Because going to Pilate and asking this was equivalent to a public confession. He was coming out as a follower of Jesus. This condemned, crucified Jesus. Yeah, that guy. And what was in it for him? Nothing. Well, at least in his eyes, because Jesus was dead. But up until that point where he found courage, Joseph of Arimathea was a Solid, church-going guy. Highly religious. But when it came to Jesus, he was passive. He was silent. Held within the tomb of fear. And when we feel like we're among the few following Jesus in our society, we can silently step back into the tomb of fear too. You may be the only Christian in your friend group at school. You may be the only Christian parents in your kids' soccer league. You may be the only Christ follower in your extended family or your industry at work. But anytime we find or feel ourselves to be the minority as Christians in a group of people, it's easy, it's easy to just, just not know how to be. Right? Am I the only one? <laughs> like, it's easy to, to just not like kind of step carefully and feel like we can't truly be who we are in our day-to-day lives. You see, most people in our society buy into what I would call the story of secular humanism. Those are big words. But the point, basically the story of secular humanism is we were all born because of biology. But every human being, in its essence, we're good. Right? We're good. So we don't really need a savior. In this life, if you're going to have faith in something, have faith in yourself. Or have faith in other people. Right? And just do what makes you happy and just try not to think about death. That, in essence, like, again, I know this really boiled down, is the story that most in our society follow. Do you guys see that? Are you you tracking with me on that? Are you guys still with me? All right, just making sure. Making sure. But if this is the story of your life, guess what? That's going to then influence your morality, your values. It's going to influence how you treat other people, how you make decisions. And if that ideology pervades our culture, then the more and more we are going to stand out when we openly and authentically follow Jesus through all of our, all our lives. And when we stand out, like, will we be judged? Will we be excluded? Or worse? And like Joseph, I find that many of us as Christ followers, man, we, we, we want to follow Jesus. We do follow Jesus. And we don't want fear to run our lives. But it's just easier to just kind of lean back instead of truly being ourselves. 
as followers of Jesus. And to just keep us within its tomb, fear then tells us, you know, the future is only dark. You know, New Englanders, they're so hard-hearted. And all of that just perpetuates our passive silence. But if our God's tomb is empty, and if Jesus is alive, guess what? That changes the whole story, doesn't it? Because you see, all the evil powers of its day, from Rome to the Pharisees, tried to throw their worst at Jesus. But in the end of that story, the angel still said, He's risen. He's not here. He's going ahead of you. We talk about how hard New England ground is, but our God came out of a rock. <laughs> and Jesus' resurrection, if he's alive, guess what? That's just the beginning. His resurrection is but a promise or a preview of what's to come for all of those who have placed their faith in him that you will rise too. You see, God's enemy, Satan, only tells you part of the story. He tells you the part of how dark it's out, it is out there. And all of that just makes you want to stay in your cozy tomb of fear and shut the door. But in Christ, we get the whole story. Yes, it's dark, but our God's alive. And if he's alive, then you know what that means. That there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the risen king. Because that's who he is. Folks, even if we find ourselves in a tomb of fear, do we realize the tomb of Jesus is open, that he is alive, and that he has already gone before us? Some of you are like, I'm not sure yet. That's tomb number one. Let's get to tomb number two then, all right? Maybe this one. See, tomb, tomb number one, tomb of fear, seeks to silence our faith. But not all of us, I know, recognize, like, some of us identify with that one. Not everyone does. But there's a second tomb that comes to try to rob us of hope. And how does the resurrection and life of Christ break that one open? See, when we are powerless, the tomb of despair tries to darken our hope. Next, we meet three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James or Joseph, and a woman named Salome. And these women are amazing. Absolutely amazing. Because when the disciples fled, these women stayed and even watched as Jesus died. And when Jesus was buried, they observed where he was laid. And then on that Sunday morning, they didn't have any hope that they were going to show up and see an empty tomb. But they were just coming to do what they could to bring spices to anoint his body. When, when all the men fled, these women stayed. Some of you ladies are like, that's right, that's right. But, but, they, but they were the ones who were brave, devoted to the end, to the end. But I want us to imagine in this, as they're going about life, how powerless they must have felt. They loved Jesus. He changed their lives. No one had ever loved them like him so imagine how traumatized they must have been as all they could do is sit there and watch him die and they could do nothing about it. 
how small they must have felt. Add to that, as women in that society, they didn't have much power anyway. Like a woman's testimony in court in that day wasn't even considered admissible. So isn't it interesting, quick parentheses, isn't it interesting that in Mark's gospel that he dignifies these women because they're the first witnesses, testimonies of the resurrection? Isn't that amazing? But imagine how powerless they must have felt. And when we are powerless to change things, we can step into a tomb of despair too. In our media-driven age, I mean, our own minds are bombarded consistently with, with news of human suffering. Natural disasters, wars, overdoses, ideological divides, political failures, moral failure. The list could keep going on and on. And as we see this string of human pain, we wish we could do something about it. And for many of us, like, like we're, okay, like, we want to pay attention to all of that. But frankly, we're, we're, we're just trying to solve the problems in our own marriage. But we don't know how. Or as a parent, we wish we could change our kids. You know, before you have kids, you think you can change your kids. Once you have kids, you realize, oh, <laughs> Or maybe some point in your life, something deeply painful happened to you. And like the women in this story, all you could do was watch. And you still, in your own way, carry the trauma of that to this day. Talk about powerless. This world has a cruel way of reminding us of just how powerless we are. You know, I was reading this past week how billionaires like Jeff Bezos are committed to solving the problem of death. There are those who think they have power and control that they don't really have. But when we get honest about what we can control in this world, we realize it's really not much, is it? And when we desperately want to change things, and we realize that we cannot, that often leaves us in a state of of anxiety, depression, or even despair. Some of you in here, you are consistently carrying this twist in your gut. And after a while, you start asking, like, like, what's the point of even trying? Like, what can I even do? What do I have? No one's going to listen to me. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm not experienced enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not charismatic enough. And so like these women, we just keep going about life, but we're never alive. Because we're held within a tomb of despair. And our faith in Jesus, you see these women, they were coming looking for a dead Jesus, not an alive one. And for some of us, we show up to church, we pray, and we just don't really even expect God to talk back. We don't expect him to do a work in our lives because we've just lost hope. But after looking down in their tomb of despair, it says that the women look up. And what do they see? The stone has been rolled away. And I love how human this story is. 
Because it doesn't say that the women see the tomb rolled away and hear the news and just jump for joy right away, right? No, it says that they're trembling and confused. Because they've been held within this tomb of hopelessness and darkness for a long time. And this news that they are now the first witnesses of this resurrection and that God has made a way through death comes as a complete shock to their system. You want to know when the gospel's really started to sink into our hearts? It's going to be a shock to our system. Right? We're not going to know exactly what to do with it right away. But the reality is death was the undefeated enemy of humanity until God raised Christ from the dead, breaking open the way of life for all who trust in him. And hey, listen, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, I have a hard time finding hope too. The Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith and so is our hope. But his grave is empty. Guys, he appeared to many after, hundreds. And those witnesses of his risen life gave their lives defending the reality that they saw the living God. And if he is alive, then guess what? He goes ahead of us to prepare a place for us, not only in this life, but in the next. And so we know we always have hope. The tomb is open. Jesus is alive, and he's already gone before us. All right, let's get to tomb three then. Tomb number one, fear. Tomb number two, despair. What about tomb three? But Kirk, I don't see another example of someone in this story. Like, who's number three? And that's, that's exactly the point. Who's not in this story? See, when we've messed up, the tomb of shame isolates us from God's love. The women were the first messengers, but who were they supposed to tell? The disciples and Peter. Why does the angel name Peter specifically? Because he's the one who screwed up big time. He messed up bad. He's the one who in the moment of need, he denied Jesus three times. And he messed up so bad that some in the early church might even think that he didn't even deserve to be a part of them. They could have kicked him out. He was the man who was once on fire, full of faith, big expectations for his life. Everyone said, oh, you're going to be a great man. But now in shame, he's not even in this scene. He's hiding out, isolating himself. But despite all that he's done, God still calls his name. And when we've messed up, it's very easy for us to step into the tomb of shame too. Some of you, you live with these daily thoughts of failure and regret. For some of you, the voice of shame is so loud in your head, that critic is so just, just loud in your mind, that you've either started confusing it for the voice of God, or when you hear somebody tell you, you are forgiven, God loves you, it's as if it falls on deaf ears. Because all you can hear in your mind is the shame and the guilt of things done or undone. And for some of you, because of that, 
You can come in here every Sunday and you can hear the message of God that God has already done enough to bring you into relationship with him. That is because of what Christ has done and God's grace that you you are brought into a connection with the living God. But you can hear that every week and still think you have to do things to earn God's love. I've been there too. I can't tell you how many times I go to pray and I almost don't want to because the only thing that's in my mind is the voice of the inner critic, the guilt, the shame, telling me all the reasons why I do not deserve God's love or acceptance. And some of you, like Peter, you've pushed God at arm's length. You may pray, but you haven't prayed with your heart in such a, in a while. You may come to church, but a lot of it feels like dry ritual. And anytime you think of God, oftentimes it just reminds you of the pain and failure of what you've done. But he still calls your name to. And just as Jesus, after he rose from the dead, where did he go? To Galilee. Why? Because that's where Peter was. And just as he went to Peter, he is coming toward you with grace, with mercy, with love, and with victory over sin. And you know, Peter was even able to say in his letter later on, he's even able to say, catch this, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. What? Mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Jesus, his, his resurrection did not only open the tomb of fear as he triumphed over the powers of evil in this world. He did not only open the, the tomb of despair as he triumphed over the power of death. But he blasts open the tomb of shame as his great mercy and grace proved that sin does not have the final word for those who trust in him. And if we trust in Jesus, and if he's alive, and Scripture says that we've died to the old self in all of its mental videos, and we've come alive in a new life with him, and when those old mental videos come up again, because, oh, they sure try to come up, don't they? Scriptures tell us to fix our eyes on him who went ahead of us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The tomb is open. Jesus is alive. And he's already gone before us. And again, it's so interesting how the whole gospel of Mark ends, isn't it? These women hear this amazing news. And instead of just jumping right out and going and sharing it, it says that they were freaked out and didn't say anything to anybody. Is anybody else just unsatisfied with that ending? <laughs> like, like, but what, ha- what happens next? Right? You can see why someone wanted to try to add something on to the end of it. So what's Mark doing? If this is the way he chose to end it, why did he choose to end it this way? And my best guess is that Mark ends his gospel with a question mark, with a dot, dot, dot. 
so that we as the reader are asking, well, what do they do next? But that question isn't just for them. It's for us too. After we have taken in everything from the Gospel of Mark, as we have seen who Jesus is, as we have wrestled with what it means to follow him, how will we respond now? Do you feel a little trepidation about what it means to truly like, be bold in the midst of this society, to really love others, to be, to be authentic to following Jesus in the midst of our world? Do you feel that? And will we allow ourselves to remain passive in a tomb of fear? Will we remain powerless in a tomb of despair? Will we continually isolate ourselves from God in a tomb of shame? Or will we hear the news that his tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, and he's already gone before us, and will we choose to follow him? (laughs) And I don't want you to answer that question right now. I want us to take that question. And this week, we're beginning a church-wide week of prayer and fasting. And I want us to take that question into this week and truly wrestle and ask God, God, is there anything in my life that is holding me back from following you? Have I allowed fear, despair, or shame to bind me? God, will you search me and speak to me and show me what it is you want me to see? And so in this upcoming week, we're going to dedicate this whole week as a church to fasting. Fasting, in essence, like the most simplified version, means to give up something that's a potential distraction in order to set apart time to pray and to focus on God. This is not a magic formula. This is not some ritual that we do. But this is about opening ourselves up to God that he may speak to us and then preparing ourselves to respond to whatever it is he's saying to us. So this week, let's lean in together. Can we do that? Can we lean in together, everybody, and truly say, Lord, I want you to search me this week. Speak to me. I'm coming not looking for a dead Jesus, but a fully alive one. One who is dynamically working in my life and transforming me. Because the tomb is open. Jesus is alive. He's already gone before us. Just stand and pray with me. Lord Jesus, oh man, I just pray that you speak to us. And actually, you know, more like it, I know that you're speaking to us and you desire to speak to us more. So maybe just open our ears to hear. And I know that when we see the reality of your resurrection, that you did not only die for us, but that you rose again. And we realize that you are a God who is living and active. And and that, that, that while sometimes the future seems dark, we know that the end of the story is only victory for the for you. So Lord, will you, whatever parts of our lives where perhaps we're still living within a tomb, 
May you reveal that to us. May you open it by your power and lead us into the full life that you have for us. And may you also give us faith-ignited imaginations for what it is that you want to do in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our communities, and in our world. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. All right, let's sing, let's worship.